0: It's not that easy being green Having to spend each day the color of the leaves When I think it could be nicer being red Or yellow or gold Something much more colorful like that It's not that easy being green. It seems you blend in with so many other ordinary things. And people tend to pass you over. Cause you're not standing out like flashy sparkles in the water or stars in the sky. But green's the color of spring. And green can be cool and friendly like And green could be big like an ocean or important like a mountain or tall like a tree When green is all there is to be It could make you wonder why, but why wonder, why wonder, I'm green, and it'll do fine, and it's beautiful, and I think it's what I want to be. It's She <laughs> no.
1: Hello, friends and enemies. It's episode 216 of This Machine Kills. I'm Jathan, joined by Ed and producer Jeremy, as always. And all right, so just recently... I mean, I guess a month ago now at this point, but it's still very much, very much recent in the the kind of news and analysis cycle. Uh, the COP twenty seven or the United Nations Climate Change Conference of Parties, um, the twenty seventh uh, annual one of them, uh, just recently you know met. Um, so you know a lot of discussions happening about. Climate change, climate change responses, questions of climate justice, uh, questions of, uh, you know, monetary uh, policy and fiscal policy to fund uh, climate adaptation, climate mitigation, uh, and climate loss and harm uh, uh, initiatives. All of these kinds of things. You know, a lot of, a lot of big discussions going, of course uh because that that's that's what that's what the climate change space is especially good at, right like lots of really big uh, discussions about world important events uh, and a lot of, Promises and pledges and proclamations that someone needs to do something about this. We're trying to find the guy who did all this climate change and hold him (laughs) to account. Someone needs to do something about this. And, 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 you know, heads of state like to really stand up and be like, uh, you know, we pledge to find the guy who did this. And, and and hold him to account in the the, the World Court of, of climate justice uh, and you know big CEOs uh, of you know giant fortune 500 companies uh, you know the the biggest some of the wealthiest people in the world you know we're, we're talking you know it's Amazon it's BP it's shell it's McDonald's it's whoever right like you know they also like to stand up and, and make Claims about how they are committing themselves to ESG. We'll get into exactly what ESG really means uh, later on in the episode, or maybe the next one. But you know, they like to stand up and say, "Yo, they they are committing themselves to sustainability." Uh, you know footnote there that that means sustainability of profit um, not sustainability of the planet don't get it twisted uh, it's your fault if you believe that they mean one thing when they say something else uh, and they are committing themselves to net zero right this is another big one right reduction of carbon emissions uh, investment in carbon reduction technologies uh, investment in bonds carbon bonds the kinds of Things that we talked about with um, Avi uh, in, a, in a previous episode, looking at you know the carbon credits and crypto economy kind of collision between those two uh, areas, and and so with that, yo know, of course comes a, a lot of space for critical analysis of all of these. Promises pledges, proclamations uh, you know of, of justice, accountability, transition, all of this stuff uh, you know and so one uh, a really nice series of articles that we want to dig into in this episode, in addition to digging into the kind of broader political economy of exactly what's going on with you know COP twenty seven with uh, you know energy transitions with green tech, green finance, green capitalism. Over this episode and going into the premium episode, uh, we want to spend some time and, and talk in a more focused way about these about these issues. Um, and you know we'll we'll build on an, uh, some really great analysis that's been rolling out leading up to and coming out after uh, COP twenty seven and. In particular, uh, there, there's Phenomenal World, which is a really nice little uh, magazine that I think has really uh, grown to be producing some extremely interesting uh, articles and essays doing kind of critical political economic analysis of uh of 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 energy, of monetary policy. They've had really great stuff about data and technology um, in there as well. I think it's uh funded by the Jane's Family Institute, which I don't really know much about, but they they support the work of some friends of the show. Uh and and so, you know, Phenomenal World has a a, a really great series of Articles looking at things like decarbonization, de-risking, uh, you know, monetary policy and the climate crisis. You know, the the uh, they've had a series that they've started around the poly crisis, right? Like, you know, uh, this idea that there's a multiple intersecting kind of over, over-determined crises happening right now that are so uh, entangled with each other and so like uh, mutually reinforcing of each other that it's, you know, it's not productive to think about them as like simply different crises happening in parallel, but rather as one big poly crisis. Uh, And so, uh, we want to dig into some of these essays, some of these articles. There's also some other really great stuff, you know, uh, investigations. Bloomberg had a really interesting piece last year on ESG. Um, there's been some really great articles, uh, in the political economy literature, um, looking at the energy transition and stuff like that. And so all that's just kind of doing a little scene setting that for, for, uh, this episode and going into the premium episode, we're going to be uh, kind of taking a harder look at yeah the space of green finance green tech green capitalism what and what that means for the future of our planet i don't know where do you want to where do you want to begin ed where do you want to begin with getting into
2: all of this so i think a good place to start is with uh daniela gabor's kind of reporting on what's happening at cop 27 um and the wall street consensus as she terms it and 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 developing this idea of uh, I, i think or to step back it's a good place to start because it kind of develops a little bit of the history of what Financial institutions and world governments and coalitions of capital and uh, financiers and regulators have been thinking about in terms of how to um, undermine uh, momentum behind carbon emissions and financing of dirty infrastructure and propping up dirty assets or stranded assets, um, that you know, assets that are going to be continuing to produce right now profitable, uh, dirty energy. Uh, but in the long run, will be unsustainable. Not a, uh, for. You know, not just because of the risks that they pose to the planet, but because there's an estimation that, uh, they will be foreclosed on because of state action or market action, right? In one way or another, right? And, and there's, and so there's a lot of money that's going towards these energy sources that are increasing the risk of global catastrophe, um, and that are also just not going to get all the money out of them by the time that there's going to be a crackdown. Uh, perceived crackdown or anticipated a crackdown on carbon emissions um or a tightening of of of, uh, int- of uh, markets around them right so we'll start here with uh daniela gabor you know we've talked about her work before in the pod uh specifically with um Blackrock and Aladdin and and these asset managers and and a lot of her work focuses on shadow banking and larger financial infrastructure so it makes sense here because at Cop twenty seven. Uh, the the big question here is, you know, how are we going to finance um, de-risking and 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 mobilizing from dirty energy to green energy? And she starts by looking at Cop twenty six, where uh, John Kerry, who was made uh, to be the envoy for for climate is effectively uh, an, an advisor who also serves as a diplomat of sorts through these international proceedings, uh, talks about how there's a need to de-risk the investment uh, and create the capacity to have bankable deals that's doable for water, it's doable for electricity, and it's doable for transportation. And and de-risking, um, which is uh, a hot... Word that circles around these sort of events is basically a way to uh, get the public sector to cover and foot some of the bill, or the risk. um, You know, as part of the the model that pops up over and over and over again of like, how can we socialize some of the losses that we might experience, but uh, bring home a larger share of the profits, right? So, how can we get the public sector to invest and and foot some of the bill here, so that? private financiers don't see it as a huge cost of capital to invest in wind farms or to invest in solar farms or to invest in hydropower um, or or public works projects that are creating dams or energy grids to store uh, green energy, right? Um, How can we uh, prod Financiers to do this right, and so there were, have been a few proposals over the past few years on how we're going to de-risk. Right, uh, the one that immediately was proposed after uh, after Kerry's statement um, is is from the head of the Glasgow Financial Alliance for Net Zero, um, and it comes to us from Mark Haney, he's the head of it, uh, and he talks about how uh, GFNs, GFans, Gfans, uh, we'll probably call it, um, is looking to have. Have partnerships with uh, governments and institutions to to mobilize 130 trillion dollars for green energy and this sounds good right but at cop 27 there was a different tone struck right um and in which the head of uh g fans uh carney you know basically said that there There was a failure in the mobilization here, um, and that we you know there had been a failure to m- ensure that pledges to reduce emissions and to provide those investments had fallen behind the thresholds, and that we were going to you know the fight that was supposed to be against greenwashing, you know, which is basically attempts to say that you are reducing emissions through some esoteric or on paper instrument, but not in reality, you know, maybe. You know, one benign and pernicious examples, like saying you're going to plant a hundred thousand trees or X amount of trees for X amount of activity, right? And you're not really, and you know, as investigations before have revealed, you're not really planting the trees, uh, nor are you, uh, reducing the activity. You're just trying to offer it as like a balance, as a net zero, um, yeah, you know, net zero calculation on paper, right? There had been demobilization towards uh, from de risk that came from this G fans uh, specifically from people like BlackRock's Larry Fink, right? Um, and there had been inter coalition, you know, debates uh, specifically a- among the the Atlantic countries, which uh, didn't you know we're uninterested in mobilizing the capital right and 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 so the question is why is that and for a long time there has been a reluctance to actually put up money and capital there right there's been promises pledges at all of these meetings to to put upwards of hundred billion dollars right, which you know as Gabor points out is the bare minimum of, uh, of of what is needed to provide green financing for the global south. But the the OECD had estimated there was a almost a twenty billion dollar gap in the public and private um, uh, finance that was mobilized right, and that's a conservative estimate right because Oxfam puts it at you know twenty four billion. This is the beginning shape of that Wall Street consensus, right? The idea that decarbonization... The transition to green energy has to come from a political arrangement, an agreement, and consensus that prioritizes finances, needs, and concerns, and that the state's involvement should be in using the public sector to subsidize or foot the bill and de-risk and incentivize a transition to green assets. But that even this sort of proposal, which was you know slanted towards Wall Street heavily, um, Seem to be losing momentum, but um, Gabor cautions against that and says that you know that's not actually what has been. That's not the full picture. That there has been a rollback of this Wall Street consensus of the finance-led one, um, but there's also been a move towards a rollout stage where you have state and 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 uh, non-state entities or institutions set up by states to scale up the amount of capital that can be deployed and the instruments to de-risk uh, green assets and to create new green asset classes, right? And not nature, because uh, God knows I fucking hate <laughs> nature as an asset class, but you know, figuring out uh, financial infrastructure uh, to incentivize asset managers, uh, development institutions and banks to pour money into financing projects in the global south and north. Here, you know, I'll quote here her at length here because I think this explanation is really good where she writes, "The, The Wall Street consensus provides the ideological software for claims that global finance should be the anchoring point for green transitions. Take the CNBC COP26 panel of mobilizing private finance with Larry Fink, the chief executive of BlackRock. Joe, uh, Jose Finnels, the chief executive of Standard Chartered; Allison Rose, the chief executive of NatWest; Andy Briggs, the chief executive of Phoenix; Greg Case, the chief executive of AON; and David Chormer, chief executive of the London Stock Exchange. They're massive players in the financial sector who, you know, collectively are handling trillions and trillions of dollars. And these panelists agreed that decarbonization was fundamentally a challenge of crowding private credit into green activities by blending public and private finance, and asked who should decide where finance flows. The chorus led by Fink responded in unison: financiers, especially in the U.S., are taking the lead, but multilateral spaces like COP26 were critical for regulators to catch up and establishing de-risking partnerships. And so here, the the, the framing is that. Um, is the framing is a deceptive one uh, by by those panelists, right? Because the attempt here is to say the only issue is that the public sector hasn't figured out how to how to corral really innovative and dynamic capital flows, right? Uh, but it's really to distract from. Uh, desires among especially uh, coalitions led by the global south to take a more hands-on regulatory approach which would actually uh, penalize uh, uh, carbon emissions, carbon financiers, uh, charge high rates on high carbon lending. um, and, And these were proposals that started to see some exploration and support in Europe over the past two years where we were trying to figure out ways to Uh, create uh, taxonomy, public taxonomies, as as Gabor writes, for categorizing green activities and dirty activities and incentivizing green ones and punishing dirty ones, right? And on top of this, you know, these financiers are concerned that already there were major concerns, uh, major concessions being made to climate activists, specifically double materiality, in uh, carbon basis and monetary policy and dirty penalties right and and, and all of these are again like financial ins- instruments and institutions or practices aimed at making it more expensive and punishing uh companies financiers um the hordes of capital for flowing towards dirty activities and infrastructure so blackrock kind of led the fight and and Aggressively lobbied against all of these interpretations or uh, desires to finance green energy and assets, but it, it it opposes them also outright because it it sees them as an opportunity for regulators uh, to get more involved in in the markets and start planning them more actively and and foreclosing the possibility of making money on assets which will eventually not make money, right? So. You know, here at, in, in that sort of panel, it kind of represents how there's a, there's a concern, right? That, you know, oh, if, uh, if regulators are interested in punishing us, then what if they're interested, interested in wielding other instruments that they don't typically use? Um, we talked about in the last few episodes of, uh, uh, Omarova's idea of using central banks to massively expand the capacity and funding for public projects, and there's an analogous Concern and 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 how there was some backlash to that uh, both in Congress but also b- among financiers and there's an ancillary concern here where um, Fink and others were trying to you know mobilize against the idea that central banks should drop the idea of market neutrality right and this this basically is an idea that central banks are not going to use their ability uh, use their asset. Uh, Use their portfolios of assets and use their balance sheets um, to try to punish, uh, you know, institutions, bonds, uh, financiers who are putting money into dirty uh, activities, right? You know, here Gabo writes, the principle of market neutrality reassures central banks that their unconventional purchases of corporate bonds have no distributive consequences as long as purchases reflect existing market shares, if say the corporate market bond the corporate bond market traded shell and total bonds equally the ecb would be market neutral if it purchased half shell half total the market neutrality masks carbon bias, such uh, such that ECB subsidizes fossil companies by purchasing their bonds. So without being bonded by the market neutrality principle, central banks could decarbonize monetary policy and curtail private finance's contribution to the climate crisis, thereby minimizing financial stability spillovers by explicitly targeting dirty credit assets. The mandatory decarbonization of private finance was politically and institutionally possible, right? So so this is a this, that that's a big move, and understandably, why uh, asset managers and financiers would be against it, right? Because this, you know, a lot of states have had uh, trouble with, or considered anathema to look at seizing infrastructure, fossil fuel infrastructure, outright uh, removing subsidies that exist. Uh, for uh, their energy-producing sectors, um, and 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 mobilizing instead that those subsidies um, and you know state protection or any sort of industrial policy towards towards green energy fully, uh, but the central banks remind, remain like a huge pillar in international financial markets with this market neutrality because then there's an implicit subsidy of carbon emissions in a fossil fuel infrastructure. But if you remove that, you would do far more than what, you know, in theory, you do far more than what state governments are able to do um, and and might even be willing to do, right, if you could convince central banks to abandon the market neutrality. And so these people, you know, they mobilized against that, understandably, right, by insisting that mandatory decarbonization was dangerous, Um, And that regulators need to get silly ideas out of their head, like the ECB has a carbon bias, right? Or that we need to have penalties for using dirty assets or for uh, building out fossil fuel infrastructure. And that instead we need to partner with financiers. That financiers are not the enemy here, but they're actually a strategic ally that can be used to discipline and and mobilize markets without the heavy hand of the state or of central banks, and that this also has an added bonus of being able to undermine um, initiatives that global South countries uh, put forth, where they're insisting on also mandatory involvement and contribution of capital to um, not just green projects, but of restructuring debt that they own the glo- they owe the global North either through climate repa- uh, repay creation or reparations um, or through uh, more friendly debt instruments that are, are not as onerous or you know not as uh, high in interest or not tied to uh, the forcible reforms that might undermine you know a sort of just and green transition right and their strategy as Gabor writes seemed to be working at cop 26 right there you had the network of for greening the financial system a massive network of uh, over 100 central banks um, focusing instead on um, climate risk and stress test scenarios, right? But you also saw that they pulled back in their press releases from mandatory decarbonization and instead were re-embracing voluntary decarbonization. As you know, Gabor kind of points out, there's a compromise that's working here with the U.S. Federal Reserve, which doesn't have any interest in decarbonization uh, and Bank of England's governor, Andrew Bailey, now uh, joining the rollback coalition, again, uh, uh, kind of defanging and undermining uh, calls for using central banks uh, to impose mandatory decarbonization. And also, uh, uh, you know, kind of the opposite of what we were talking about with Omar Ovor, now they're also saying we don't even want to use our balance sheet in any way the the Bank of England announced that it was going to sell all corporate bonds to shrink its balance sheet, abandoning efforts to discipline carbon financiers capital rights right so th- so these efforts you know successful lobbying by these asset managers and financiers, uh, the pullback and the rollback of mandatory decarbonization language uh, the, the the lack of an appetite at state government levels, but also in central bank. Um, uh you know channels of power and in, in 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 not using their ability to abandon market neutrality um and also uh, uh, embracing the idea that uh, we should even you know reduce what little power we do have or are interested in using by just getting rid of you know, our position in corporate markets uh in corporate bond markets right gets rid of a lot of really useful tools and, and this all gets even further complicated by inflation in early 2020, by the Russian invasion, which sparks an appetite for fossil fuels. Uh, all of this makes it easy for financiers to use this as cover for, uh, demobilizing. This mandatory decarbonization, because now they're saying, well, you know, look, also the central banks have to hit their inflation targets. Right. All of this, you know, that provides cover for them to to um, choose quantitative tightening over ecological tightening. Right. And ecological tightening would have been, OK, we are going to increase the cost of borrowing for dirty firms we're going to um you know abandon market neutrality we're going to coordinate with the governments and with development institutions to try to handle energy markets um because energy markets here are tied to um you know expensive fossil fuel providers and suppliers for the continent and the and the energy markets in the region the the inflation focus right again makes it hard for us to to chart a clear path of all right, when are we going to focus on making it expensive and disciplining capital? Um, you know, disciplining capital and making it expensive to to do the sort of stuff that accelerates climate change. I think this is here. You know, as she's laying out why it makes sense to look at all of this and say, okay, well the well the rollback has worked, right? That there's no interest in ecological tightening. There's no interest in using central bank. Balance sheets. There's no interest, or there's you know there's demobilizing and curtailing interest, and in all these things, and there are macroeconomic disasters and conditions, which are making it easy to just continue the status quo. And all of this happens at the same time as consistent under delivery and shortfalls of financing for the global south uh, through green financing, right? And that all of this mm-hmm. means, you know. Uh, Your know, Wall Street gets its finance-led package. Regulators abandon mandatory decarbonization, and you can avoid the fear of a really painful for financiers transition, uh, but a just one nonetheless. Right for us, for the rest of us. To us, to us, to us, to us.
1: All right, t- tag me in, uh, tag me in. Uh, it's time yeah, for yeah, me to. Got to uh, <laughs> I, I got flex on this Wall Street consensus. So I'm, I'm going to pile drive it. <laughs> <laughs> yes, yeah, so, I mean everything you just laid out was, you know, really. It, it's you know, it's what Daniela Gabor calls the you know, the the rollback, right? The rollback of the. Uh, the rollback arm of the wall street consensus, and that was like that was last year right that was cop twenty six cop twenty six last mm-hmm. year is all focused on rollback as you would just as you just laid out everything there you know about you know uh, reversing mandatory decarbonization all of that stuff right like rolling back the state, rolling back these concessions to climate activists and and all of that kind of stuff cop twenty seven this year. All about rollout. We are, we call me Walmart because we're rolling out. We're rolling out low, low, low prices every day. Uh, that's what the Wall Street consensus is focusing on this year. And, you all know, to take a step back real quick, it also shows a really interesting compression of time here where you know last year was the rollback this year's the rollout um and, and uh and i know jeremy's gonna throw in some uh limp biscuit here keep rolling rolling i see the twinkle in his eye already i know it's happening <laughs> <laughs> so uh so if we step back for a second there's Uh, A kind of broader analysis, one of my favorite analyses of neoliberalism under this idea of, like, actually existing neoliberalism um, and understanding it uh, in these kind of broader structural ways as a a neoliberalism as a form of statecraft, Uh, there's um, uh, an argument here that... Uh, was really first kind of made in, in, I think, its most powerful way and concise way by the uh, political economists and geographers Jamie Peck and Adam Tickle, who in 2002 wrote a really excellent article on actually existing neoliberalism, where they lay out how uh, you know the neoliberalism, the development of it has kind of undergone uh, a few major. Stages. Um, two in particular, uh, with whatever's happening now, is pro- you know a, a kind of third stage. But it maps on to what Daniela Gabor is talking about with the roll, roll back versus roll out, where uh, uh, Peck and Tickle argue. You know, there, there seems to have been a shift from the pattern of deregulation and dismantlement so dominant during the 1980s, which might be characterized as rollback neoliberalism, right? So uh, that kind of 1980s is all about, you know, that's the Thatcher and Reagan years, right? This is what we tend to think of as like the neoliberal approach to uh the economy to markets to the state it's all about a negative frame rolling back regulation uh rolling back state agencies you know shrinking the, uh, uh, you know, shrinking the, the the government, shrinking the national debt, shrinking everything. You know, it's what Grover Norquist, the, you know, famous conservative anti-tax uh, kind of, uh, you know, think tanker, advocate, thought leader, whatever, right, famously said that, you know, his goal is to shrink government to the size such that he can drown it in a bathtub, right? Like, want wanted to be really, really small government so that you can then, uh, destroy it, crush it, drown it more easily. That's the kind of like 1980s Reagan-Thatcher um, kind of view of neoliberalism as a, as a negative uh, uh, project in the sense that they are against stuff. They want stuff to be rolled back. That gave way, however, in the 1990s um, to uh, uh, what uh, Peck and Tickle call roll-out neoliberalism, right? And this is focused not on deregulation and dismantlement, uh, but on what they say, quote, the purposeful construction and consolidation of neoliberalized state forms, modes of governance, and regulatory regimes. In other words, what began as a starkly utopian intellectual movement in the 1970s was aggressively politicized by Reagan and Thatcher in the 1980s before acquiring a more technocratic forum in the self-styled Washington consensus of the 1990s. And so that Washington consensus, this is the third way. This is the Clinton and Blair kind of a a power duo happening here of, you know, not uh, of rolling out new forms of government that are focused on enacting neoliberalism, doing neoliberalism as a positive project, a positive project of doing stuff, of changing stuff, of constructing new agencies and new regulatory uh, regimes and modes of governance, uh, while at the same time consolidating around the kind of ideological values uh, and power uh, 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 of that kind of, of neoliberalism, right? And, and Here, what Daniela Gabor is talking about maps onto that, right? I mean, she's, she's kind of, you know, very explicitly following from this Washington consensus of the nineties, um, to the Wall Street consensus. And we might think about this new stage of this kind of neoliberalism, uh, in terms of, uh, financialization, right? This is why Daniela Gabor is focusing on the Wall Street consensus. It's all about finance, right? Whereas like neoliberalism in the past was, you know, finance absolutely played a role, but it was a lot more focused on the state. What is the state? What, what, what is the state doing or not doing? What should it do or should it not do? Um, and now this is like, you know, uh, the state has done its business over the last, you know, however many decades um, uh, to create the space for finance to ascend, right? And this is where we are now. Now it's about um, now it's oriented towards, uh, uh, what you know, the kind of fabrication and facilitation of financialization, right? If we're going to keep the the kind of uh, 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 alliterative. Uh, you know analysis going right so going again going from the deregulation and dismantlement of the 80s Reagan Thatcher uh, rollback neoliberalism uh, from that to the construction and consolidation of neoliberal state form uh, state forms uh, it, with the Washington consensus you know Clinton and Blair to now, The, uh, the kind of the Wall Street consensus focusing on uh, simultaneously rolling back and rolling out, um, for the purpose of fabricating and facilitating the ascendancy of finance, right? And so this is, you know, it, it's not Reagan Thatcher, it's not Clinton Blair, it's Black Rock and Blackstone, right? Like this is this is the kind of uh uh the duos at the forefront of this. Um it, you know obviously there's a lot more going on and a lot of other actors, but like you know, Larry Fink in particular, especially with focusing on climate Focusing on sustainable uh, investing and development. Larry Fink, founder CEO of BlackRock. We've done episodes on BlackRock. Um, Highly recommend going back and listening to him. Right, the kind of uh, boardroom of the world. Uh, You know, Larry Fink, uh, BlackRock, uh, uh, the largest asset manager with uh, over ten trillion dollars of assets uh under management, uh an incomprehensible number, like an inhumanly incomprehensible number that keeps growing. Uh you know, and their their whole uh strategy is about owning the market, right? And through that uh, Larry Fink exerts a lot of influence. He doesn't write letters to shareholders. He writes letters to CEOs. He's the kind of CEO of the CEOs. Uh, and through that, he exerts a lot of influence in terms of uh, the you know market governance and trajectories and developments and and what you know what BlackRock thinks are important uh, things that the uh, the market as a whole should be focusing on, and his big thing, of course, has been kind of banging the drum around ESG, uh, environmental, social governance, uh, investment, development. Um, You know, the importance of climate and and addressing climate and understanding these things as existential risk to capitalism right like this is of course at the key of all of this is it's not like uh you know there's not there's not some kind of climate justice or or uh you know green peace kind of you know he's not some uh beatnik you know nature lover in the in the body of a uh a wall street predator no no all of this is always about uh making capitalism and the rate of profit sustainable. That's what it's really about. We'll get into this more later after we get done talking about the Wall Street consensus, uh, COP27, all of this. Um, I want to talk more about ESG, environmental, social and governance, um, and what that actually means versus what people think it means, you know, kind of marketing versus the materiality of it. Um, but that's for, that's for later on, uh, down the road, um, of these, uh, episodes that we're doing this week. So to go back to it the uh the wall street consensus then is the the kind of new development the uh, of the, the the kind of roll back rollout neoliberalism now we're seeing rollback rollout financialization especially focusing on green finance this wall street consensus uh is all about you know it's it's Uh, you know, it's that quote from John Kerry that we started at the top of the episode with uh, where he really kind of lays out the logic of the wall street consensus very succinctly. Um, Not like, not because he's knowingly being like, here is the wall street consensus, but because he has so he is the embodiment of the wall street consensus, right? He can't do anything but uh, like parrot the ideology without knowing that he's doing it. And so you know, that quote from John Kerry, where he said that uh, this, you know, climate policy needs to be all about, quote, de-risk the investment, create the capacity to have bankable deals. That's doable for water. It's doable for electricity. It's doable for transportation. And let's focus on that, right? Like bankable deals here uh, is a code word for uh, investable deals, which is itself uh, a code word for profitable deals, right? So for deals to be bankable, they must be investable and for them to be investable, they must be profitable and that's fun- that's 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 a fundamental, right That's essential. If we're going to do things like green finance or green transitions or green policy, they need to have at their heart, profitability and we'll get into that a little bit more later as well there's a really excellent uh, article that just came out very recently by the uh, political economist brett christophers one of my favorite political economists writing today Um, and he has a fantastic article looking at uh, the relation between price and profit um, in the energy transition and what he calls fossilized capital um as a kind of play on Andreas Malm's book, Fossil Capital, uh, kind of building directly on that analysis. But to get back to the the kind of Wall Street consensus stuff, right? So we need bankable deals, and and a big part of that is de-risking. Uh, you know, so this is what rollout uh, the rollout version of the Wall Street consensus is all about. That's what COP27 this year has been all about, right? Like, you know, Daniela Gabor lays out that the overarching policy question at COP27 um, can be summed up as, quote, how do we scale up de-risking to make decarbonization investable for BlackRock, right? Like, so in other words how do we make these deals bankable, which means investable, which means profitable for the big asset managers like BlackRock? Because they are, uh, for better or worse, um, or I should say for worse and worse, uh, they are uh, being held up as the champions, the vanguard of the energy transition, right? Like if BlackRock can't, can't lead the way for a uh, a green transition, you know, well then it won't happen, right? Like that's essentially the 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 kind of logic at play here. And so for that to happen, we need to de-risk it. Now, what does de-risking mean? I want to quote from Daniela Gabor, uh, 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 where she uh, kind of explains what this this logic of de-risking. So. She writes, quote, global inflationary pressures have since reinforced the political appeal of de-risking. De-risking provides a compelling status quo political message. In the new age of geopolitical tensions, energy competition, higher interest rates, and massive global debt pressures, decarbonization is possible without massive public investment. I'm saying hallelujah well, I, I had no idea that we could actually do large scale global decarbonization without massive public investment that's that's one amazing that's amazing yeah uh, socialists and communists hate this one one easy trick they don't want you to know about it <laughs> Daniela Gabor goes on all it takes I'm, I'm feeling like some rubber's about to hit the road here. Uh, (laughs) All it takes is tinkering with the risk and return profiles to make projects investable. That is transferring some risk from private to public balance sheets. In a green hydrogen project, for example, the state can absorb risk from private investors in various ways. One is fiscal de-risking. So this is like, you know, the state, uh, the, the government taking an equity stake in a project, um, you know, uh, uh uh giving assurances and protections against currency demand doing uh or or kind of or political risk to these kind of green hydrogen products um while also guaranteeing uh, uh or providing price guarantees for surplus renewable energy so in other words there's always going to be a market there's always going to be a buyer um at A profitable rate, of course, profitable price um, for renewable energy. So, like, that's one way that the state might do some de-risking. Another way is that, like, kind of the monetary de-risking. Um, so, here's like, you know, issuing green bonds, uh, providing preferential loans and exchange rates for these projects. Another one might be uh, regulatory de risking, right? And so, um, you know, and here, preferential regulatory treatment for green hydrogen producers, for example, uh, or uh, green hydrogen input requirements um, for hard to abate sectors, right? Uh, removal of subsidies for state owned incumbents. And so, therefore, you know, um, um, providing a more competitive market for the public uh, investors and, and producers. Right. So like, these are different ways that uh, the state can obs- uh, do de-risking. Now it's, it's very interesting here that what all of this de-risking means is uh, reducing the risk of p- private profit, right? Like that's what de-risking actually means here. Not like, not not reducing other kinds of risk, right? Like, uh, or at least not as a priority, not as, uh, you know, value number one. You know, other types of risk might be, Um, reducing, or or let's say de-risking the planet, uh, reducing the risk of planetary catastrophes uh, uh, that might threaten uh, billions of people's lives and livelihoods uh, across the world, especially those who are already um, on the the bottom 90% of the global economy, right? Like that could be one way of de-risking, but that's not the way that we're talking about here we're talking about de-risking the private sector's ability to uh extract uh, uh profit and not just profit but profit at a preferential rate of profit um uh, that is the kind of de-risking that we are talking about with this kind of rollout wall street consensus right uh, uh, Daniela Gabor goes on to say that, you know, civil society organizations concerned with worsening human right outcomes, since investable projects or green assets and water, electricity and transportation, housing, education, healthcare, or energy have to generate cash flows that pay investors, you know, they can easily be dismissed on macroeconomic grounds with shrinking fiscal space. Critiques of de-risking are just the perfect is the enemy of the good type of wishful thinking. What we see here then is uh, a a really uh, pernicious kind of use of financial language, you know, de-risking, talked about in this very technocratic way of this is the um, most technical and objective and effective uh, way of addressing these problems, Um, uh, but it all just masks ultimately ideological and material uh, vested interest here around public private partnerships that we're so familiar with where the public takes on the risk and the private uh gets to keep the profit uh, assurances of preferential rates of profit on green assets um through you know massive subsidies and other kinds of de-risking initiatives by the state aimed at uh, uh in particular finance right green finance because it's ultimately the Black Rocks of the world who are going to uh, lead the way here by providing the capital, providing the leadership, providing the the long term vision, fueled, of course, by short term re- short term uh, returns. Short term returns. Uh, that's a, a, a tongue twister. Um, and it's all premised on uh, improving, as uh, as what's called the the blended finance initiative, uh, you know, aims to quote improve risk reward ratios for marginally bankable transition projects to attract private capital through catalytic and concessional funding from the public sector and philanthropic sources to crowd in multiples of private capital by absorbing a portion of. Private Project risk. I like the kind of flip they do here where it's like, Ed, I'm not, I'm not I'm not calling finance out, I'm calling them in. Right. I don't want to crowd out. I don't want to crowd out private capital. I want to crowd in private capital. Uh, get, get into my bosom, <laughs> you know, and I'm tired of, of pushing people away. We need to pull them towards us. Like, like it's all that kind of language. It's very, very, like it's so funny to see these people just completely ape that kind of language, but that's what this is ultimately all about. Right. Like this is. What, you know, in Daniela Gabor's analysis, which, you know, um, as as you lay that, I mean, Daniela Gabor has been studying this for a very long time, the kind of convergence of asset manager capitalism, green finance, uh, the kind uh, of, you know, monetary policy, uh, the geopolitics, you know, kind of global politics of, of all this, especially looking at big institutions like the World Bank and IMF, right, um, Daniela Gabor is, is fantastic on all of these things, and, 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 and I, uh, I think she has really laid out a, a very compelling argument here that um, if COP26 was all about the rollback of the uh, Wall Street consensus, um, you know, paving the way for facilitating the ascendancy of green finance, uh, then COP27, you know, this year's conference of parties for the UN um, is all about the rollout uh, uh, Wall Street consensus, right? Like, you know, the, the way has been uh, paved for them and now it is time for them to take the scepter. Right. And, and all along the way, Um, We have to, we in the sense of uh, the the state, the government, and the the citizens, constituents, taxpayers, uh, inhabitants of this planet, uh, our role is to do everything in our power to uh, assure that the black rocks of the world feel comfortable, um, that they are not scared. Uh, that they are called in, uh, that they are crowded in, um, and that they are uh, that green investment opportunities um, are a safe space, uh, a safe space for private capital that assures um, a constant preferential rate of profit uh, because, as we all know, uh, if finance, capital, uh, fossil capital, Uh, If these, you know, big players in the energy transition and climate justice and adaptation and mitigation and all of that, if they don't feel um, that their needs are met, uh, then they will take their ball and go home. Right. Like that's ultimately what it comes down to. Right. That's that's what a lot of this. Uh, talk of de-risking. This is something I've been thinking a lot more about, especially in returns, uh, uh, in regards to like my work on insurance, right? Because like risk is obviously that's what like insurance industry is all about—is you know managing and mitigating risk. That's what uh, finance is all about, right? Is managing and hedging um, against risk right and you know and now we see that that's what like global climate policy is all about is uh the 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 managing and reduction of risk for private capital right like i've been thinking a lot more about the role that risk plays as this kind of a uh, as this ideology in terms of like setting the terms of what's possible what's not possible uh what we can and can't do where capital flows and where it doesn't flow um how it uh and how we live right ultimately how we live uh in the you know, at a personal level uh community level um global level like ultimately we have all just become kind of enslaved uh, enslaved to risk um and it's interesting to hear like the big powerful uh financiers and insurers uh you know the leaders of the fire sector right finance insurance real estate it's interesting to hear the larry finks of the world for example also talk about risk as this like exogenous force that exists outside of them that they are also powerless uh to do anything about uh, uh that that they can only that they can that they are only pushed and pulled according to the tides of uh of risk. Um, like risk is cast as this, you know, man behind the man behind the throne. Uh, you know, if like the shadow banks and the fire sector more generally is the you know, if they're the man behind the throne in terms of like they're pulling the string of policy and all of that, well, the the man behind them is risk to to put this differently right like the the fire sector um you know th- this cornerstone of contemporary capitalism this uh uh, corners, the, the the kind of holders of our fate uh, plan, at a planetary scale have long been described by uh, as a, a form of shadow governance, right? Like their, their economic power ensures their interest and goals always have political influence over the people and institutions that make decisions about society. And we see this uh, in, you know, with Daniela Gabor's uh, analysis of COP27 just playing out perfect, um, and so if the throne is government, then the fire sector is the man behind it. Uh, so, what motivates them, right? Like, you know, of course, there's uh, kind of these desires and imperatives around profit and power, right? That motivates them a lot. But, like, what motivates these industries at an institutional level? What, rather, to put it differently, what do they fear? Not what do they want? They want profit. They want power. They want to be profitable and powerful uh, from now until eternity. But that's what they want. What do they fear? What what motivates their primal lizard brains? Uh, you know, for them, the answer is this: is risk. Uh, and, and we see this in like you know, in terms of the the kind of continual innovation and implementation of systems, technologies, and policies that are designed uh, at every level to assess, analyze, monitor, manage, price, prevent uh, risk of all forms. Right about about anything and everything that might threaten them in the world. What we see happening, I think, is that, you know, in a broader sense, and, and these are some arguments I'm developing for um, a yet-to-be-announced, but perhaps soon-to-be-announced uh, a large-scale a project of mine uh, uh, for next year, um, that, like, what we see at every term is that all of these systems are ways in which this kind of endless pursuit to control risk motivates the institutions that influence the organizations that oversee society. The man behind the man behind the man behind the throne, right? Like, and and, and I think a lot of our uh, recent accounts of technology and capitalism, um, more generally, and ultimately, that's what a lot of what we're talking about here with the kind of green finance, green policy. Uh, you know it 's about capitalism, but it is' also about technology it 's about financial technologies in the form of financial instruments it 's about carbon reduction technologies it 's about technologies of, of, of risk and risk mitigation. but ultimately, I think these you know our, our, our general kind of analyses and accounts of technology and capitalism rarely give risk the kind of critical attention it deserves. Um, which means that these analyses and accounts are woefully incomplete, right? And, and this is one reason why I think Daniela Gabor is article and broader analysis around the wall street consensus is also really essential for understanding what is happening currently in uh the realm of 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 the green green finance green policy green capitalism all that is that it centers risk um and de-risking uh at, at, you know as a a kind of core part of, of her analysis and as a kind of core part of um, all these different developments and stuff that we see happening in this space. Um, But I'll throw it over to you, Ed, because I'm sure you've got some bigger, broader thoughts as well. Maybe some stuff to leave us out on. um, And then we can transition over into the premium episode because I want to get deeper into like the mechanics of ESG ratings and investment uh, and uh, the kind of like this like price profit uh, risk relation uh, in the uh, in, uh, green uh, energy transition. So, but we'll save all that for the premium episode. Trying to get better about doing not massively overlong episodes and kind of breaking up some of these into deeper dives spread
2: across multiple uh, episodes. The place we can end it is like thinking about where she brings it to at, at the close, right? Where, you know, we're thinking through, okay. Now that we have the rollout consensus established, what does that mean for future energy projects going forward? Right, and specifically, she shines a light on the LSF, the Liquidity and Sustainability Facility, um, which is uh, you know a, a group of initiatives that are looking at how to reduce the cost of green borrowing for African countries, along with other ways to uh, facilitate green development, market building for these renewable energy sources and surplus energy that's produced in a way of de-risking, but this time focusing on African sovereign debt. as She points out the mechanism that they're doing it is through a repo facility um, that that basically allows or would open up... um, the risk of the same sort of financial scandals that we see where there's a run on a pension fund or when crypto markets collapse because there's, there's a lack of liquidity in the system uh, because uh, the repo basically allows you to build a ridiculous amount of leverage and operate on that leverage as a way to have more capital, access to more capital, right? I, the reason why she ends up kind of zoning in on the LSF because the LSF here. Uh, was announced with a hundred million dollar inaugural transaction that was supposed to be financed by the Afremix Bank, uh, which um, you know, is a bank that was having a basket of, of currencies from uh, and funds from Egypt, Kenya, Angola, and their euro bonds. Um, and from and and the initial ambition was not supposed to be a hundred million. It was supposed to be $100 hundred billion. With lending that was supposed to come from OECD central banks. And uh, special drawing right allocations, and again, the special drawing rights are these—you know uh, are the IMF's kind of unit on its balance sheet, uh, allow uh, accounting unit on its balance sheet that allows access to assets that kind of prop up their, their their currency exchange reserves. But here we saw that that ambition wasn't actually met, and instead, what ended up happening was that an African institution was now supposed to take. Uh, capital and finance that was supposed to be allocated for African companies into subsidies that were going to benefit foreign investors who were trading African euro bonds. Right. So, it, and this is an important example because this is kind of like you know building up on everything that Jason explained about the, the sort of the logic behind this, the the ro- the rollback and the rollout. This is another way to make capital. Say for itself at expense to everyone else, and so a return to de-risking energy transitions with these partnerships and green hydrogen projects, and these become the core of what the global North is advocating for as its way for a just energy transition in South Africa, in Indonesia, in Vietnam, in Senegal, in India. They're proposing uh, that money get mobilized uh, by members, largely in the global South, but also with some from the global North. As as a way to um, facilitate this green transition, and as, as she writes, right, quote, while Indonesia may be strategically using its critical resources, nickel, tin, aluminum. To renationalize value chains and promote technological upgrading of national industrial champions, it is also playing a de-risking game with international investors. That this game might turn out expensive for the Indonesian state and its citizen, who is loading risk from private investors, is never mentioned in the upbeat press releases. Yet, as the Institution of Economic Justice points out... The de-risking at the core of the $8.5 billion South African partnership effectively commits South African fiscal resources to make private renewable projects investable at the expense of fuel subsidies for poor households. Bringing it all back in in that investable, bankable, de-risking, all of these are framed as ways to involve finance and turn it from a hostile opponent to a strategic and friendly ally. But in reality, what they're doing is they're offloading costs onto public balance sheets, right? Undermining pre existing commitments that would have supported other parts of development and, and green transitions and just transitions to make a more, appetite, a more appetizing return for investors in the global north and and green energy specifically green hydrogen is where a lot of this ends up falling because you know Europe as a result of the war with uh, in Ukraine uh, by Russia and uh sanctions and, and on on the Russian economy and um you know geopolitics of exporting uh, liquefied natural gas and oil uh to countries that are also sanctioning Russia has you know, made uh, has created an energy crisis in, in on the continent, right? Um, in the region, um, because of the over reliance on Russian fossil fuels, and so there's been this attempt to say, okay, well, one way we can also de-risk, one way we can decarbonize, one way that we can also preserve national security is by ensuring that we create these green hydrogen projects. And that by 2050, uh, we want about a quarter of global energy demand to be met by green hydrogen. And for half of Europe's demand of uh, green hydrogen um to, to be at 20 million tons at 2030, right? And produced locally while the other half is imported, right? And so they've been signing all these green hydrogen partnerships with African countries and de-risking is essential to all of them. But as we talked about, right, what we're doing is, yeah, we're saying we're going to commit to mobilizing private capital for mega projects, but we're also going to reduce the ability for African countries to control their own capital, to, to to use their own scarce financial resources, and to potentially make it more expensive by forcing them to, in one way or another, cut subsidies that are going to other parts of uh, of the country uh, for poor households. And so here, you know, she writes such partnerships reduce the scope for African and other countries to strategically control green hydrogen chains, and threaten to trap them into the same patterns of unequal ecological exchange that have characterized carbon capitalism, this time as exporters of green commodities, generators of financial yield, and consumers, but not producers of clean tech. And this is really some of the, you know, the, the, the real issue here, right? De-risking has obscured uh, the real you know, scheming. Of, of, of these financiers, right? Or they're trying to get people and regulators to, to avoid the more politically devastating for private capital and its autonomy, the more politically devastating uh, regulatory pathways, right? Uh, market neutrality, carbon bias, double materiality, substantial commitments of their own capital, uh, taking up risky investments, not having guaranteed profitable uh, markets uh, that are backed by the state or some other combination of investors uh, to make sure that they can they should just keep producing, even if it might not make the money in the short term, right? You know, and all of this is, you know, how do we make the world safe for capital, not how do we make the world safe for everybody in the face of carbon capital? Um, it's a tool that is undermining the green Dages transition and making it unjust, as she writes, adequately funded public services, affordable access to renewable energy, decent housing, and thriving green manufacturing sectors in middle and low income countries. These are all being abandoned. These de-risking partnerships are all about how do we pr- ensure that returns remain that the way that they are, even higher than they might otherwise, and make everyone else pay for uh, the crime, the great ecological crime that we have and have done that they've done. And creating massive funding channels for capital flows into dirty activities and dirty assets. And how do we avoid being held responsible for it? How do we avoid being disciplined by the state? How do we avoid being undermined by central banks? How do we avoid regulators getting uh, funny ideas about climate reparations, Global South Nations getting funny ideas about green financing deals that we contribute the most to? And how do we shrink the role of the state and its hands? and its influence and its intervention in anything other than making sure that capital gets the returns that we want. And, and, and that's pretty much what the Wall Street consensus has pushed for and tried to achieve um, at COP27.
1: That's a good place to end this episode, I think, before we transition ourselves uh, into um, some other topics. In the premium episode, we're gonna—I want to get a little deeper into some of the mechanics. You know, we talk about the scheming uh, that the financiers are doing, and I want—I want to talk about uh, you know all of this kind of shit around ESG, right? You know, that this is this is some. Some prime scheming uh, that the financiers have done. Some prime marketing that they've done, um, very successfully. Uh, you know, we we you know we we hear about greenwashing, but I don't think. I don't think we've had greenwashing on the scale of the entire concept of ESG uh, it, you know to the extent where a lot of people don't realize um, that it, just what ESG actually means, uh, it's very much one of these concepts that plays off of like uh, I didn't say that's what it meant, that's what you thought it meant. Uh, You know, like, so Mm -hmm. we're going to get into that a lot more um, as well as some other uh, analysis of the uh, kind of imperatives and dynamics driving or not driving an energy transition. So stick around, find us in the Patreon episode uh, at patreon.com slash this machine kills um, where you can find this plus tons more uh, premium episodes every single week. We've now amassed a huge Back catalog of of episodes, both standalone stuff, book club stuff, uh, part twos of uh, deep dives into topics, interviews, things like that. So find us over there, uh, and yeah, I'll, uh, I'll, I'll, we'll we'll see ya. we'll see you in the premium feed. Until then,
2: adios, later. later, later.